thank you very much for coming along tonight. A warm welcome to you. This is the um, seventh session of the People's COVID Inquiry, organised by Keeper Anxious Public. It's entitled Profiteering from the People's Health. There's a question mark at the end of that, and the answers hopefully will come during the course of this evening. I'm going to try to rattle through some announcements before we introduce our honoured guest. Um, the event is being live streamed, live streamed tonight on Keeper Anxious Public's main Facebook page and also on our YouTube channel and Twitter. For those that wish to use it, there's live captioning available. Please click on the CC icon at the bottom, uh, closed captions, uh, or look for the accessibility guide in the, in the chat. Um, we'll be posting some useful links in the chat throughout the session. I hope that's not too distracting. Um, and that will include an appeal for our crowdfunder. Um, the video of this session is being recorded and like all the other sessions, it'll be available to watch again through our uh, YouTube channel or through the website. Um, I'm going to go straight into introducing the panel. Our panel chair is Michael Mansfield, who is internationally renowned as a human rights lawyer, currently really busy with the Grenfell inquiry. And as probably most people know, he represented the Stephen Lawrence family, many Hillsborough families, and many other important cases. Professor Nina Modi is Professor of Neonatal Medicine at Imperial College London, and Nina is also President of the UK Medical Women's Federation. Dr. Tallulah Oni is an urban epidemiologist and public health physician at the Medical Research Council Epidemiology Unit in Cambridge. And our final member of the panel is Dr. Jackie Davis, who's an NHS consultant radiologist and author, and also a BMA council member and appearing in a personal capacity as are the rest of the panel. And a warm uh, welcome as well to Lorna Hackett, who's our barrister, counsel to the, to the inquiry, and is a barrister at Hackett and Dabbs LLP. Now, this is a great honour to be able to introduce Michael Rosen tonight to give a, a short introduction to our seventh session. He's a patron of Keeper NHS Public. Um, he's an author and a poet, UK's Children's Laureate, 2007-9. to nine. Michael, unfortunately, suffered from COVID and has been suffering from long COVID. Um, However, he continues not to suffer fools gladly, and he is a fantastic supporter of the NHS. Thank you very much for being generous enough to come and share the evening with us, Michael Rosen. Thank you. Is that my cue to speak, Tony? It is, please. Right. Well, let's get straight in. I welcome the government's announcement that they're going to hold an inquiry, but it slightly misses the point because we need an inquiry now, or if possible, yesterday. Um, why? Well, because there were serious errors that this government made in February, March, September and December in particular, in 2020, that is. And the problem is, is that the same people who committed those errors are there. They're still there now. So we desperately need to delineate, to number and to make very particular what these errors were, why they were committed, and indeed, uh, what used to be called the sins of omission as well as commission. That's to say what things were not done 
So, for example, the whole debacle of test, trace and isolate, and indeed uh, their unwillingness to implement masking, social distance and washing early enough and fixed enough because they were so resistant to the idea of a public health policy. Uh, we only have to reference um, Boris Johnson's speech of February the 3rd, 2020 for that. Now, the pandemic is not over in spite of our optimism, and I'm very much in favour of optimism. I think it's a great idea. But variants are appearing and we don't know whether which variants will appear and might be uh, of even more serious nature than uh, the ones that are appearing. And we're also in the phase of contradictory and muddled advice. So we're getting all sorts of advice about amber and green and red and um, variety of advice coming from the EU versus what the UK is coming up with and whether we're going to have localised shutdowns or not. So we're, we're not actually in a situation in which we're clear. And then to reference back, uh, we should reference back to Operation Cygnus. I keep calling it Signet, but um, I don't mean to diminish it. Um, that Operation Cygnus was not implemented. We need to know why not, because this would have made things better if it had been. And obviously, we've got to look closely at the nature of the awarding of the contracts, because this is part of the general picture that we're uncovering about the way in which uh, this government favours the private sector when we're talking about a public health matter and the way those contracts were awarded. I was in a ward in which, uh, an intensive care ward in which Professor Hugh Montgomery, it's in the public domain, has said that the issue with PPE was so appalling they were receiving second-hand PPE, some of which had blood on it. And in my ward, I contracted Klebsiella. Uh, that's also in the public domain. So it's a secondary infection. I had a viral uh, pneumonia, of course, as a result of COVID, but then I got bacterial pneumonia as a consequence of the overcrowding in the in the ward. But that was exacerbated, if you like, by the terrible state of PPE. So a lot of questions need to be answered, and they need to be answered now, and not um, kicked off into the long grass. Thank you very much indeed, Michael. We're very grateful, and uh, I want to introduce Michael Mansfield straight away now to. Um, thank you himself. <laughs> yes, he will. Thank you very much indeed, Michael. I'm glad to see a, a recovery after such a traumatic event for you, Michael Rosen. Thank you. Uh, we are obliged uh, and appreciate your support. Uh, and often at the start of these hearings, I've made these remarks before, but not quite the same as tonight, before we get going with the witnesses themselves. And because although you have welcomed the judicial inquiry, as do most of us, there is a major problem here, and it persists even greater now, because uh, Boris has come up with a date. Originally, he, he didn't give a date six months ago. Then he didn't do anything at all in relation to it until he was pressed by those uh, who have been bereaved. And I think the pressure became so great, he felt, especially when the Archbishop of Canterbury joined in, that he ought to come up with some sort of date. So we're talking about the spring of 2022. Well, I want to be, like Michael, an optimist, but I kind of feel that that's culled from the blue, as it were, because uh, knowing as I do how much is involved in public judicial inquiries, if you're going to announce, if he means this, the start of one, uh, next spring, then you have to have in place right now the judge who's going to do it, because it's going to be major, take up a lot of time, 
uh, and at least two other panelists, possibly more, up to uh, a panel of five. Then you need assessors. Then you need a legal team. Then you need a venue. Need I go on? If you're going to start next spring, because that logistical structure is required in order to assemble the documents, to interview the witnesses, to ensure that there is disclosure, and to ensure that the public are properly represented as well, because it affects all of us. Now, my suspicion is that none of that has been done, and that is why nothing has been said about it, which means that we're likely to get a further announcement that it's not meant to start in the spring, but he's going to start thinking about it in the spring, because, of course, he's he maybe have an eye on an election that's uh, not too distant and would be embraced, because it'll take at least five years for an inquiry, even if it started in the spring, to really get going and make a report and recommendations by, what, 2027? So Michael's point about we need answers now is very important. And there's a final matter on this. I'm taking a little time tonight because it's extremely important for the public to recognise how significant this inquiry is. Because the other thing you would have to do if you're organising a public judicial inquiry when you approach the judge is to let the judge know, and the public, what's the scope of this inquiry? Well, <laughs> I think it would be fair to say that the topic we're dealing with tonight, profiteering from public health and all the people's health, is probably not one that Boris would want to be included in the scope. And as it's a government inquiry, he would be entitled to exclude it. And of course, that's another matter which is often forgotten when one's supporting a judicial inquiry. So this bears upon what we've done this minute, which is we're not going to wait and we're not waiting, so we've invited Boris to contribute to this inquiry. He doesn't have to hang on. We, we can accommodate him if he's willing to come, or, or Matt Hancock. And it's also clear from the press overnight uh, that the government is in fact sitting on some kind of review or report, which is um, so far not being made public, but should be. And we'd be very grateful if the dossier that he's sitting on, or someone is, about the management of the, of the coronavirus is made public, and he can do it through us, as can, apparently, Dominic Cummings has got a, a document of historic and crucial importance, which he's trawling around, I suppose, at the moment, that a whole list of people he wants to, I don't know what he wants to do, but he can bring it to us. We would like to see what it is he's, he's sitting on. There are so many of these covert documents and points about the handling of the of the of the of the of coronavirus that it is in fact um a matter now of public concern and urgency now i say urgency because we're all aware that there is another variant now we're not going to be able to fit that in tonight but we want to show why this inquiry is important in another regard because on the next session we're hoping that we will be able to do uh, what we've been doing all along, and that is illustrate the lessons that have been learned and the questions that need to be asked. Think about it. In a sense, we're now exactly in the position we were a year ago with a new variant, the transmission rates of which are not clear, the infection rates are not clear, not clear whether the vaccine will be able to cope with this variant, B1.6. So. 
These are questions which we may begin to address on the next occasion, but not tonight. So for tonight's session, with the heading we've got, may I hand across to Council for the inquiry, Lorna Hackett. Thank you. Thank you, Mr Mansfield. Um, I'd like to call the first witness for tonight, and that is Professor David McCoy. Sorry. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Good evening. Can you hear me? I can, yes. Fantastic. Um, now, as I understand it, this evening, your evidence um, and what we're going to be discussing um, was submitted by way of a research paper prepared for tonight by the Centre for Health and Public Interest. Is that correct? That's right. Great. So, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So, so this is research that has been conducted by the Centre for Health and the Public Interest. And if I could just make some acknowledgements at the beginning, uh, David Rowland, the director of the centre, and Sid Ryan, our, our lead researcher. And so I'll be speaking to some of that research. That research is not yet published, but will be published and put out in the public domain um, as soon as we can. Thank you. Um, so just by way of introduction, could you just explain um, your background and your profession? So I'm a public health doctor. I'm currently working as a full-time academic at Queen Mary University, London. Um, but I'm here really in, in my capacity as uh, one of the trustees of the Centre for Health and the Public Interest. Um, I've uh, been a former director of public health in the London Primary Care Trust, um, and I've had a long-standing um, interest in health systems policy. Um, I've worked both as an academic and as a practitioner in that field. Thank you. Um, so if I can just ask uh, the, the first question, uh, which relates to, to the paper that you've kindly provided. Uh, and it's clear that there's been some really significant research undertaken by the Centre for Health and Public Interest um, on, on this subject. Uh, at the outset of the pandemic, there was a deal between the government and the private hospital sector. Could you explain to the panel and to people watching what that contract was? why it was considered necessary and what it meant in practical terms. So there was a contract that was set up with the private hospital sector en masse, um, 26 private companies um, formed part of a contract whereby essentially the NHS um, block booked um, the entire capacity of, of those hospitals. Um, and this was done ostensibly to help the NHS deal with the COVID um, epidemic. Um, now, the contract itself is quite complicated because it, it went through a number of modifications and changes over time. Um, but at the beginning, what the contract did was to essentially provide those companies with, a, with an amount of money that gave the NHS access to all of that capacity that were in, in those 26 private companies. So... Um very, probably a basic question. Why did the NHS need to rely on the public sector in the first place? On the private sector? Forgive me, the, the private sector in the first place. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, there's, there's a historical reason for this. Um, I mean, the NHS has been, over the uh, past few decades, um, seen a reduction in, the, in, in its bed capacity um, to the point where... England has one of the lowest um, beds to patient uh, population ratios um, in, in Europe. Um, this has been partly a deliberate strategy to kind of reduce that reliance on, on NHS hospital beds. And I would say it's a 
part of a strategy to create room and opportunities for the private sector to develop um, in, in the hospital sector. Um, so we, we entered the pandemic with a lack of hospital capacity. Um, and so to some extent it made sense to try and bring in some of the private sector uh, capacity to, to be able to deal with, uh, with, with the pandemic. So you said that the, the contracts got quite complicated because they changed over time, but dealing, if I may, with the initial period between March and I think it was August 2020 and the first phase of that contract, how much healthcare capacity was provided by the contract and how much of it was actually used? So the contract um, stated that something like 8,000 beds would be made available to the NHS and that the NHS would be able to call on that capacity. Um, in addition to those beds, there, there were stated number of doctors, nurses and other clinical workers. Um, now, what we paid for that capacity is one of the big issues in that we, we don't quite understand exactly how much uh, was paid for that capacity. We've got um, rough estimates. Um, and, and the issue is, is really that a large amount of that capacity wasn't actually used to deal with the COVID um, pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and once again, there, there is uncertainty about how much of that capacity was, was actually um, used by the NHS during the period of the, of the pandemic. So when you say it was um, not necessarily used in terms of COVID patients, what, what was it used for? Okay. So, so there's, there's a, a, we think that probably a large amount of the capacity was used for diagnostics and a number of non-elective procedures. Um, we've estimated, or CHPI have estimated, that over the course of the pandemic, on average, um, you know, there was one COVID patient per day in the private uh, hospital sector, um, and at the probably at the peak at which the private hospital sector was being used to help deal with the pandemic, there may have been at most something like 67 patients. So you get a sense of, um, of just how, how much the private sector hospital was used during this period, not a lot. Um, and I think the issue is that we, we were paying for the entire capacity at what was described as um, as the at cost, um, at the full running cost of, of the private uh, hospitals. So when we, we've said that that's, um, there are any rough estimates available, um, but given that there was on, on average one COVID patient per day up to 67, how much did this actually cost? What are those estimates? Um, well, overall, um, in terms of the total cost to that that we paid for, uh, into the private hospital sector, um, I mean the the cost varies. Um, some of the projections are that um, from from some of the contract awards uh, that that were notified and put into the public domain, we we think um, the amount was about 170 million um, 170 million pounds per month. Um, the secretary, uh, the government has also made reports of um, that figure going up to two hundred million pounds per month. Senior NHS resource uh, sources have reported um, this was in, in in the mainstream press that the amount could have been as much as four hundred million pounds a month. 
So when you think about this, this is uh, we're, we're looking at you know over a billion pounds um, over the course of twelve months that went into the private hospital sector, and the amount of activity that was then provided uh, at that cost um, can be considered to be quite minimal. Um, and in fact, what we estimate is that the amount of NHS funded healthcare during this period was less than the amount of NHS funded healthcare provided in the private hospital sector in the preceding year. So ju just to be clear, when the entire capacity of the private sector was effectively funded at cost to the NHS for that period between March and August, the amount of healthcare that was actually delivered was less during that period than it was in the previous to the NHS was less than in 2019. That's right. Right. So we mentioned earlier that the uh, that the contracts changed over time um, and that it's been subsequently renegotiated since that original contract uh, was taken out. Uh, how did it change over time? What 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 uh, benefit to the taxpayer has there been subsequently? Yeah, so just one, one other point to, to make about the, the contract is that the private hospitals were allowed to continue um, with providing care to privately funded patients. Um, there was a short period when this wasn't allowed, um, but quite soon after, um, from, from, about, um, from about April onwards, and particularly from May onwards, there was a, a, what was called a de-escalation within the contract, which essentially allowed the private hospitals to use any unused capacity to provide privately funded healthcare to patients. And the income from that privately funded healthcare um, was essentially paid back to the government. Um, so that's an important element to the story in that there was a rebate system. Um, so some of the money, um, so yeah, so, so some of the private income was, was basically paid back to the government. But essentially what this meant was that during this period of time, um, the private hospital sector was able to continue with providing private healthcare to privately financed patients um, at a time when the NHS was obviously um, being challenged um, by the COVID pandemic itself. So, so yeah, okay, yeah, so I, yeah, okay. Um, so why is the government paying the private sector public funds if that money could have been used to strengthen the NHS? Well, I, I suppose you could make the argument that, you know, there was an urgent need to bring in capacity um, to help deal with the COVID pandemic and it, 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 it might make obvious sense to kind of try and draw in that existing capacity that was in the private sector. Mm -hmm. The question about that was whether we got value for money, whether this was a good deal. <laughs> um, and all, all the data that we've got would suggest that it wasn't a good deal. And that, that's one of the key points, that this was not good value for money. But I think the other kind of key point about this um, is that there were, there were some structural effects as a result of this deal. Um, the private hospitals were actually facing real jeopardy with the COVID pandemic, um, that they were seeing a decline in, in demand from the private sector, from privately funded patients. Um, and, um, and as a result, you know, they, they were facing real financial trouble. And this deal really helped to keep those private hospitals afloat. Um, so to some extent, you can see this as a contract that allowed the private hospital sector, or at least some hospitals, to survive 
the effects of the pandemic. Um, but, you know, subsequent to this is that um, the contract is subsequently um, continued. Um, so there was a kind of a COVID period and phase, and we can think about there also now being a post-COVID phase, mm -hmm. whereby the government has continued to, or, or rather actually set aside a budget um, in order to continue to provide um, public funds to pay for NHS um, patients in the in the private hospital sector. And and this is part of, um, of what's, uh, of a four-year uh, program, uh, funding program, which aims to kind of allocate something like 2.5 billion pounds a year to the private hospital sector, which is about double the amount of NHS funded care provided in the private sector um, uh, compared to 2018 um, and 2019. Um, so, you know, not only will there be a continued stream of public funding going into the private hospital sector, but by helping to maintain the private hospital sector during the COVID pandemic, um, the private hospital sector is also, you know, in a really good position to reap some of the benefits from COVID, you know, so all of the unmet demand uh, for semi-urgent and elective care that is built up during the pandemic um, will potentially increase the amount of private demand for uh, private sector healthcare. So, you know, what we've essentially seen is, is a kind of subsidy going into the private hospital sector to help it survive the initial effects of the pandemic, and now potentially to help it thrive as a result of the increased demand for, for healthcare and that has, um, that has accumulated as a result of the pandemic. So just on, on that point, what was the, I don't know if you'll know this, you, you might know this, what would the approximate total spend from the public purse on the NHS during 2020? And what was the proportion of that that was awarded to the for-profit sector? Um, I haven't got those figures on, off the top of my head. Um, okay. Presently, I mean, prior to the, prior to the pandemic, um, something like 18% of public funds were were being directed towards the private sector, and this this is excluding um, GPs. Um, so what we can be um, fairly sure and certain about is that that figure of 18% will will likely rise. Mm -hmm. um, but but the issue here is really not just about the flow of public funding into the private hospital sector but also the possibility that we will see a rise in private funding um, into the private hospital sector. And this will again have structural effects on the health system as a whole, um, increasing uh, problems around the creation of a two-tier system. Um, and uh, I suppose uh, for some segments of society, uh, a decrease in commitment to uh, the NHS as a public service that is universal in nature. Mm -hmm. um, I appreciate you couldn't help me with the last figures. Do you know what the estimated shortfall in NHS funding currently is? I don't have that figure off the top of my head either. Don't worry. Um, and I just want to touch briefly on, um, could you explain to the panel what the National Increasing Capacity Framework is? Uh, because you talk about this in your report. 
Yeah. Okay. So, so this is the new uh, proposed contract with the private sector, mm -hmm. um, whereby um, the, you know the, this will be. Uh, it relates to that two point five billion pounds a year that's been uh, set aside um, in in order to enable the NHS to purchase healthcare from the private hospital sector. Um, Ninety approved suppliers are, are listed currently as being um, enabled by that contract. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned earlier, this would effectively double the amount of uh, publicly funded private hospital care um, when compared to 2018 um, to 19. Um, yeah, so this is a four year, uh, a four year uh, contract. Uh, now, um, probably uh, one or two questions for you before I hand you back to the panel, because I'm sure that there will be some questions for you from them. Um, but you heard at the outset, Michael Rosen said in the introduction, um, serious errors have been made uh, during the currency of this pandemic, and that the same people who committed these errors are still there now. Now, we hear repeatedly that the government has learned lessons. Now, is there a, is there a danger that the same people in government are going to repeat the same mistakes again? And if so, what are they likely to be? Well, I'm... It's interesting to know, you know, how we phrase this, you know, are, are these mistakes or are they really part of a commitment to a privatisation of the health system? Mm -hmm. In which case you could argue that they're not mistakes, but really very much part of a deliberate policy. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think, um, I think the big concern here is that we are seeing evidence of a continuation of a policy to, to privatise um, large parts of the health system. We're definitely seeing the likely growth of uh, publicly funded private hospital care as a result of this new framework that we just discussed. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, we're, we're likely to see um, a possibility of a rise in private financing within the health system. All of this will kind of essentially erode some of the fundamental principles of the NHS, which is a publicly funded and pub publicly provided service um, across the board. Um, so I, in my view, that, you know, this will result in inefficiencies in the delivery of healthcare at a population level. Um, but it will also, unfortunately, also result in certain segments of society benefiting from this. Um, so, you know, whether these are mistakes or not is, is very much dependent on your perspective. Um, from my perspective, I see these as mistakes, but from the perspectives, I think, of shareholders uh, in, in private uh, hospital companies, these are not mistakes, but these are the results of uh, very active lobbying over many years. Thank you. Um, Professor David McCoy, uh, that will be my, that's my last question to you. I'm going to hand you back to Michael Mansfield QC because I'm sure that the panel will have some additional questions for you. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Professor. I've got a couple of questions. Um, the first one relates to what you've just been talking about because um, I think everyone is aware that the fragmentation of the health service has begun before the pandemic in the sense of um, the internal market and privatization had, had already occurred and was growing. And therefore, on the back of that, 
would it be right to say, or is this your opinion, that with regard to the what you've just described uh, as not being a mistake, but there is, uh, you can detect an agenda to destabilize the national health in order to bolster the private sector. Now, I, that, that's the first question. There's an adjunct to that, and that is uh, benefiting the stakeholders in the private sector. Uh, are, are you able to help us with the proportion of politicians in the House of Commons who have a stake in the private sector? since they're making the decisions. So those are the first two questions that are related. Another one is just me, I don't, I don't follow the capacity argument because uh, I have a recollection of Nightingale hospitals going up rather quickly. So in other words, there was capacity being provided, which we understand, although not much has been said, about whether they were really used. The argument being they possibly didn't have the staff to use them. The thing is, how do you factor that in? Because that's got to have been paid for and who paid for it? And, and so I think you've got the gist of the question. So yeah. I'll uh, ask you if you could kindly answer as much as you can. Thank you. Yeah, in terms of the first question, uh, I, I don't know exactly how many parliamentarians or MPs or politicians in general have stake in the private uh, hospital sector. Um, and um, I don't know that data is is available um, and whether we have enough transparency in the system to be able to generate that figure um, but but the issue of conflicts of interest is something that is of that should be of great concern to everybody and I think that issue of conflicts of interest may become an even greater concern as a result of the proposed um, new white paper and and the establishment of integrated uh, care systems where, you know, the private sector are, are being really invited into the decision-making process of how public funds will be used and distributed uh, within, within the health system. Um, so, you know, conflicts of interest um, and um, a lack of adequate regulation to avoid, um, you know, misuse of, of public funding is something that that should be of concern and I think will be aggravated by the new um, proposed uh, bill. Um, the, the issue of capacity is curious because, um, as you say, the Nightingale hospitals did go up. Um, they weren't used to full capacity and at the same time we were paying for capacity in the private sector. So there's been large amounts of money that have gone into um, developing capacity um, and, you know, trying to understand exactly how much of the private sector hospitals were used during in, in 2020 and being clear about what that activity consisted of, how much of it was COVID related, how much of it was provision of urgent care, how much of it was elective care, how much of it was diagnostic care, and at what cost? Um, we, we just don't have enough data, and there's a real problem of transparency. Um, so, you know, being able to do proper forensic accounting of how this money was spent is something that, um, you know, that, that's required, but not necessarily possible with the available data. Does the uh, so, sorry? So I'll hand it back to the other members of the panel. Does the, there's a report out today by the National Audit Office 
Does that help? I haven't read it. I'll be honest. So I'm just asking whether you know, does it help on the figures and the data? I, I haven't read it either, I'm afraid. Oh, well, then we'll leave it. <laughs> All right, other members of the panel, please. Oh, Professor, Professor Nina Modi. Thank you very much. Um, David, you've given us some very chilling figures indeed. Um, and even more chilling is what we don't know. Now, I, uh, like you, am a healthcare professional. Um, I have experience of other healthcare systems around the world. And uh, within, within a large part of the healthcare professional community, there is a clear understanding of how having a parallel public sector health system destabilizes the, uh, sorry, having a, a parallel private healthcare system progressively destabilizes the public healthcare system. And uh, there's also very good knowledge of how a, a, a completely commodified, marketized healthcare system, such as we see in the United States, does not serve its population well. You very powerfully um, suggested that, or told us, given us the facts, uh, about how desperate the situation is in terms of the UK today. But my question to you, is this an issue of, um, to what extent is there a lack of understanding of the perilous path down which we go amongst policymakers, and to what extent is it a, is it a deliberate policy ploy, or is it, for example, a small group of those committed to going down this route who are simply taking their colleagues with them? Uh, in other words, what can we do to actually open the eyes of policymakers to what is a very very dangerous route for the UK? I, I think there's a mix here. I think um, I think there are some policymakers and politicians who have a vested interest in promoting the privatisation of the health system. Um, I think there are some politicians, policymakers, that are simply ideologically committed to the notion of of privatisation, um, and they are ideologically they don't just believe it ideologically, but they they also kind of believe that this is a, a more efficient and effective way of delivering healthcare. And they, there, there are other policymakers that I think are less ideologically committed, but have bought into this argument that it doesn't really matter so much whether you're, you get your healthcare delivered by the private sector or the public sector. Um, at the end of the day, um, you're still getting your healthcare. Um, and I think with that group of people, possibly forming the majority of politicians and policymakers, there's a lack of understanding of the evidence um, and understanding of how the public and the private sectors, both in terms of financing and in provision, interact with each other to create certain systems level um, outcomes, um, whether it be related to efficiency, effectiveness or equity. My understanding of the literature and the evidence seen worldwide is that if you if you get the public and the private interface wrong, you end up with a system like you have in the USA, where you have healthcare, a health system that is both extremely expensive, not cost effective at a population level, and extremely inequitable. And the direction of travel that we have in the NHS is very much towards that kind of public-private model that we have in the United States. Um, 
So I I do think I think you're right, Nina, in suggesting that there there isn't enough of a detailed understanding of the complex nature by which the public and the private sector come together, both in terms of financing, but also in terms of provision. But you're suggesting, David, that the evidence tells us the evidence the evidence tells us that this country is currently pursuing a flawed model of healthcare delivery. It's flawed if you're concerned with um, population level health outcomes, if you're concerned with the overall efficiency of the entire health system. It's always possible to cherry pick certain indicators and give the impression that, you know, that there are improvements with these indicators or, or those indicators. Um, but if you're looking at a population wide level, if you're concerned about equity, if you're concerned about um, efficiency across the patch, um, you know, covering all elements of healthcare, then yes, without question in my mind, we are going down uh, the route of a, you know, flawed healthcare policy. Thank you. All right, can I just ask if either of the other panelists have anything they would like to ask, or if not, we can move on. No? Um, then may I just thank you, Professor, very much for giving up your time tonight and elucidating uh, really what is a complex topic, but an important one. Thank you. Now I'm going to hand back to counsel to the inquiry, My Lorna pleasure. Hackett. Thank you. That's all right. Don't worry. Lorna Hackett for the next witness, please. Thank you, Mr. Mansfield. I'd like to call uh, Dr. David Wrigley, please. Good evening. Hello, good evening. Uh, thank you very much for your uh, witness statement. Um, I have before me a witness statement dated the 15th of May, uh, which you have signed um, and confirmed that the opinions that you have expressed represent your true and complete professional opinions on the matters to which they refer. Uh, does that remain correct today? That's true. Thank you. Uh, could you give the panel your occupation, please? I'm an NHS GP. I work in Carnforth in North Lancashire. Uh, and I'm also Deputy Chair of the British Medical Association Council, which is the um, doctor's trade union with over 160,000 members. Thank you. Now, we've heard numerous times during previous sessions of this inquiry that major problems seem to have arisen uh, around contracts in two categories. Firstly, PPE, and secondly, with uh, test, trace and isolate. So. With particular reference to your um, to, well to earlier privatisation of the NHS, which you refer in your to in your witness statement and outsourcing during the pandemic, what went wrong in both of these categories and why? So the, the BMA has uh, long opposed um, deepening privatisation outsourcing in the NHS, and on test and trace, we had significant concerns about the substandard performance of what was largely an outsourced test and trace system. Huge sums of money. Uh, handed over in I think May last year it was 22 billion pounds to set it up and then since then it's had 15 billion pounds extra um, handed over and the, I think the public accounts committee called it a quote unimaginable costs uh, and that's quite true the Department of Health justified the scale of the investment uh, on the basis of that an effective system would avoid a second lockdown uh, but we had two more lockdowns since that time so clearly that didn't work and the the government bypassed 44 NHS labs and employed these private sector firms, such as Deloitte, uh, you've heard of before, 
to set up and manage in what effect is a parallel system of testing sites and what were named lighthouse laboratories run by the private sector. And that, you know, we've seen a sustained disinvestment in, in public health services, particularly the public health system, which was once a fantastic um, organization, NHS led, uh, and that's why test track and trace needed to come in because though that service had been disinvested so much in the last 10 years. And, you know, test and trade, remember there was major problems with it. We saw patients being told to travel hundreds of miles to get their tests or asked to drive up and down a motorway when they're unwell, which caused you know, major concerns for us as doctors, asking our patients to do that. And we saw delays in delivering test results as well. And then one of the other aspects you mentioned there about PPE, that was a huge concern for us uh, as an association. Members were contacting us daily about the lack of supplies, the low stocks, poor quality. You heard from Michael Rosen about his doctor who looked after him. This was the day-to-day -day reality of doctors on the ground where often there was perhaps one day or less supply left in the hospital with no idea where supplies were coming from. And the government had delegated large parts of the management of this procurement process to supply chains, a complex web of external companies that left the government less able to respond in an agile way. So. We, we, as an association, we feel that, you know, to, to just to finish it here on the PPE strategy, the government should um, give health and social care professionals a speedy access to PPE, uh, high quality PPE that they need. And it's moving away from this just-in-time business model that was in place. It's having uh, sufficient stocks in place and using our in-house expertise. We are experts in this, but the government just completely bypass that and allow the private sector to take over. So, yeah, just picking up on the um, what you just said about the private sector. So um, I, I know that the BMA, and you, you talk about this in your witness statement, um, have significant concerns about the preferential awarding to political contacts and donors of these contracts and the lack of transparency and accountability. Can you just expand uh, for the panel's benefit a little bit on what you say in your witness statement about those matters? Yes, the, I mean, the BMA was very concerned over reports about procurement going outside the normal rules governing the NHS. Um, this is at a time when the, you know, the healthcare staff have been so focused on the pandemic and it's concerning to see public money leave the NHS in this way. Uh, but it's, not, it's nothing um, not new to the BMA. Uh, we've, we've produced reports before about uh, contracts for goods and services awarded to private firms with <laughs> no relevant experience or expertise. Uh, high-profile mismanagements in the past and and obviously documented links to advisors and senior politicians in government. And that, that led the BMA to question the integrity of how those contracts were set up, how the money was used. And we know that the government opened up high-priority lanes that were used to fast-track offers of PPE. And it wasn't what you know, it was who you knew in government that allowed you to get these golden nugget contracts. And if you knew the right politician, you know, a quick message or a WhatsApp group, and, and it, was, it was all all sorted out and these contracts were added on. So, so you, again, the um, BMA is committed to a publicly funded and publicly provided NHS, and that's how we would see the solution to this, with the government significantly strengthening the NHS and local public health capacity and expertise through a significant and sustained increase in funding, which allows those services to to use the skills that they've got. And we need much more robust governance. I'm sure you've seen this over uh, all your previous sessions where there just hasn't been any oversight of the management or coordination of the procurement and no transparency at all about these deals. We know that 
the companies often hide behind commercial confidentiality as an excuse. Um, you know, these public notices are meant to be published within 30 days, I believe, but that just hasn't happened. I think just today, the um, Good Law Project, who've been taking the government to court, have again highlighted this and challenging the government on these problems. So, yeah, you, you mentioned um, transparency, integrity. Well, it may be that the, the government would say, for example, well, you know, this is an emergency. We had to do what we had to do. Why does it matter that uh, people um, who are awarded these contracts need to know what they're doing? Why do they have to be? Why do, why do they need to be experts in producing PPE or um, sourcing ventilators, for example? So I think on, on PPE, obviously, it's uh, it's a product that <laughs> it protects the user from a, you know what what is a, a deadly virus. And uh, again, you heard from Michael Rosen about you know, reusing it. That just isn't isn't in no way good enough, and uh, it has to be robust enough and, and and of the right standard to protect the user from from the virus. So it was concerning to hear that there was you know these issues were going on day to day, and we, as I say, we were getting members contacting us over and over again. Uh, and, and, you know, in those early dark days, um, we had uh, companies contacting the BMA uh, every day. I think over 70 companies contacted the BMA about being able to supply good quality PPE. Uh, and they just said they hadn't received any response from government. Uh, this was as hospitals were on the verge of running out of PPE. As a GP myself, we, we were down to our last day or so of um, visors and, and, and surgical masks and, and uh, aprons that we had to wear. But, you know, we sent these offers over to the Department of Health and we heard nothing more. And we did that because we knew that, that there was a desperate need for that PPE. Yeah. And I think with, with Test and Trace, you know, we've got these companies who've got no experience in the past about how to, how to run services going forward. Serco and Cytel are, are two companies who were subcontracted out, I think, to Hayes Travel. Uh, and to quote one Hayes Travel staff member who worked on a... COVID phone line, they said we're not medically trained. Uh, I believe members of the public believe they were ringing medically trained people. So, you know, this caused huge concern for us as doctors that patients were seeking advice and were unaware of what the quality of that advice was. And we heard that people had had one day's training. Uh, and we know the track record of many of these companies are pretty awful. If we look at Serco, for example, in 2012, they, they were, um, Admitted they admitted they presented false data uh, over 250 times about the performance of its out-of-hours service in Cornwall. Uh, I believe they had one GP covering the whole of Cornwall, but tried to cover this up. And then in 2018, they reported to have provided inadequate staff training at a breast cancer hotline, led to patients being assessed by call handlers with one hour's training. So these are the track records of the companies that were that were put in charge of um, providing vital services and, and equipment you know that, that had to protect the workers on the front line and not having the confidence that pe these companies were able to do that really it really made those 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 working with patients really frightened about uh, what the equipment was that we were using so i'm going to ask you to make a comparison now if i may um what's your what are your views on the differences between the way that test and trace was was handled as we've just been discussing versus the way that the vaccination programme was handled by the government? Um, so I've led the um, vaccine campaign in my area of North Lancashire. And uh, as you know, um, last December, uh, the NHS was asked to step up and 
um, and roll out this vaccine campaign. GPs are fantastic at vaccine campaigns. We do them every year, uh, you know, with flu campaigns, and we, we know our population, uh, we know our patients, our patients trust us. So you know, we were absolutely best placed to do that. And the BMA uh, discussed that with government and, and, and said, we, we can do this for you. So the staff stepped up and, you know, did that work, you know, doctors, nurses, we have fantastic volunteers in our community who've helped us. Uh, but the, the government uh, took that choice, and but they um, realised that they'd ordered enough vaccine. I mean, a good, I'll give them some due here. They ordered enough vaccine for us to utilise for our patients. So that was excellent to see that. And the progress made there has, has, you know, it's helped us. But it really does um, frustrate me when the government try and, um, or the, you know, the, the um, cabinet try to take credit for the vaccine campaign when actually it's the NHS, it's the all the staff in the surgeries and hospitals and in the centres that have delivered vaccines, plus all the volunteers that have delivered that life-saving campaign. And we, we mustn't forget that. And we must celebrate the achievements of the NHS in that. So given that the NHS was very busy dealing with the pandemic, do you think it would have been realistic to ask it to run the Test and Trace programme? Well, I think that could have been led by you know, Public Health England and local public health teams, but they... Sadly, they have been eviscerated since the disastrous 2012 Health and Social Care Act, where we saw the promise that public health teams would be have a ring-fenced ring -fence budget to be embedded in local government. And since that time, the budgets have just disappeared. I used to have a local public health um, uh, consultant work very closely in my small area, knew the area well. Now, now the local public health team covers the whole of Lancashire, and it's really difficult for them. Uh, and you, I think you have to remember as well, before the pandemic, we had, uh, we're not, the NHS wasn't in a great place. We had one third of the number of beds uh, per head of population compared to Germany. Uh, we're probably around 10,000 doctors short in the NHS, around 50,000 nurses short. There's over 100,000 vacancies. So, and we spend far less on the NHS as a percentage of our GDP compared to other similar economies. So the NHS had to become a COVID service. It couldn't deal or deliver care uh, for other conditions and that that was hugely concerning to us as doctors that patients weren't able to access the care they needed uh, for all the other conditions apart from covid so yeah the, the you know the government uh, private companies and government completely ignored this expertise that was there in the public health system which which was available but you know they could have used that to build upon and and we could still do that of course if the politicians choose to do so but they were just completely bypassed you know and the private sector were moved in and that, that's a it's a crying shame because our public health doctors are, are the experts in this and they 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 weren't utilized so what do you think the government could do now to rescue the test and trace program and how best can it support the nhs going forwards given that god forbid we may well be facing a third wave yeah so i think um the test and trace it's all about some other aspects to it as well which is around isolation of, of the individual and also support support is the key here and you know we know that many people don't isolate due to being on low paid contracts or zero hour contracts and um, you know the funds that are made available by government are so hard to access so this lack of lack of a decent social security system actually is many worried about being able to pay their bills or pay their rent so so often many it's, it's a decision they don't want to make but they they feel they have to go back to work probably perhaps when they're still infectious so 
And this is where a, a publicly health run and NHS run test, trace, isolate and support system with adequate funding would, would actually have uh, been what we should have done all along. And the BMA, uh, we, we produced documents on this about taking a cautious approach to uh, easing restrictions. And we would want a larger proportion of the national budget for track and trace to be allocated to local public health teams to allow that integration uh, between testing being delivered at scale and also contact tracing led by public health doctors on the ground who know their area, know their uh, patients, and they're able to deliver that core function, which is just the bread and butter to them. But they've, as I say, they've just been completely sidelined. So, you know, those arrangements need, need to be fit for the long term, uh, probably reflecting the likelihood that this virus will continue to circulate. Uh, I now have a question from the public, so bear with me while I read this out. Uh, Emily from London asks, or, or her comment is that she's concerned about the empty beds and wards in the NHS hospitals where patients have been diverted to private hospitals. How can we make sure that this is not used as an excuse to close services and privatise them by stealth? Waiting lists are used to increase panic reactions so people don't see the long-term consequences. I mean, the waiting list is a huge concern. I think now in England, we've got 5 million people on a waiting list, which is just, uh, it's just incredible. Someone said you can see that waiting list from, from the moon now, it's so big. And that, that those that's individual people who are um, in pain, they're on drugs and medication, they'll access the NHS more, they may not be working. Uh, and the hospitals have, they've had a really difficult time. You know, they've had to, as I say, transfer themselves over to become a COVID service. Uh, they're now trying to restart again and obviously social distancing is still in place um, they're trying to uh, get staff to sort of mobilize back again into outpatient clinics and start the all the um, care that needs to happen for for um, for patients and i know my local area the uh, one of the hospitals is being handed over to in effect of sort of using it for backlog of care and trying to start doing operations and procedures that have been left for so long so Yes, I think we need to ensure that that is the case, that those beds are used appropriately, that staff are used appropriately, but it has to be done in a safe way uh, for all concerned. Um, you, know, you know, we're seeing the Indian variant um, on the rise and we're still unsure of the impact of that. So we still do have to be wary. We're not through this yet. Mm. So well, you've heard, probably heard the last witness, uh, Professor David uh, McCoy, talking about um, a sort of parallel private healthcare sector. Um, why is the creation a, of a parallel private healthcare sector destabilising the NHS? And, and why could it be damaging to rich and poor alike? I think um, the private healthcare sector and the use of the private hospitals, it's, it will never match what the NHS can provide. We, you know, we know that private hospitals don't have the ability to deal with complex patients. I, uh, when, when NHS patients were being seen pre-pandemic in, in private hospitals, you, there were strict criteria who, over who you could refer. It had, often had to be patients who were young, fit, well, and had no other uh, illnesses. So it's often what we call cherry-picking. The, the hospital would receive the, the um, patients who were uh, quickly through the hospital and in and out and making, making the, the income from them. So private hospitals don't have intensive care units. They don't deal with complex patients. So the NHS picks those up and that's that's where the problem lies and that and that, that the um the funding and the, the quick throughput of patients who can provide a rapid income is is utilized by the private sector and the, the nhs gets left with all the complex patients who quite rightly need that complex care but it's not a level playing field between 
the NHS hospitals and the pri local private hospital. Dr. David Wrigley, those are all my questions, but I'm going to hand you back to Mr. Mansfield QC, who may well have some questions for you, as well as other members of the panel. Thank you. Yes, good evening, Doctor. I do have one which is a, may sound from the um, short preamble I'm going to put to you like a, a question of law. It, it isn't a question of law, but it's prefaced by the situation. You've already touched on it uh, because in February this year, the High Court ruled that the government and the ministers concerned had acted unlawfully by not publishing the award of contracts, in other words, public scrutiny, which, as I think you've mentioned, it had to be done within 30 days. Not only have they not published that, uh, they haven't either gone through a tendering process because you've got your VIP pathway for certain people uh, who, who seem to end up associated, if they weren't to begin with, uh, with ministers and so forth, and they're billions of pounds here. Now, the question I've got is that undoubtedly there's illegality by government and there are other judicial reviews in the in the pipeline on similar issues. But their argument, well, M Mr. Hancock initially said he was just slightly behind with the paperwork. That was his initial excuse. But then the main excuse is, oh, we couldn't we we had to go into the private sector to get these things manufactured with billions of pounds of public money because uh, we didn't have time to do it any other way. Now, if what you're saying that none of this need have occurred, the National Health Service, properly funded, could have coped with the demands for PPE, test trace and so on, as well as vaccination, obviously. I mean, on, on PPE, the BME, it was a, it was it was our day in day out focus for our members and doctors, indeed doctors across the UK, um, because we knew how vital it was. And it, it, I wrote to um, um, Secretary of State saying, we, in the, just in the middle of the first lockdown, when all the businesses were on furlough, I said, repurpose industry now to make PPE, and that will sort the problem out. The letter went; it was ignored, and it was just completely bypassed. Our industry was forgotten about and obviously we know that all those contracts were handed out to firms that had, had no links to making PPE in the past or medical grade equipment you know th this is serious equipment that needs robust uh, manufacturing and, and needs to meet high quality standards and uh, we didn't know if that was the case so what the transparency is just so lacking and the, the governance is, is 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 hopeless so it really does concern me and obviously the the um the legal cases are now going forward and the government will try and fall back on the, oh, it was an urgent problem and we had to act that day to do these. But we were offering solutions. We, had, As I said, we had dozens of companies that made PPE coming forward and they were all roundly ignored. Yet we hear about um, uh, companies and friends of ministers and if you knew uh, someone in the House of Lords, you could get a contract. It, it just doesn't look right at all and it does make you wonder what the motives were. I'm going to make a request, which obviously, if you're not able to deal with it, then perfectly understand before I ask the others. And that is, would you be able to provide us with a schedule uh, or, or a spreadsheet or some form of data information indicating uh, the approaches you made to government, but the capacity of the NHS to deal with all this private procurement? In other words, you seem to be able to put your finger on the facilities that were available and could have been used, but were bypassed. 
Is that an impossible thing? Oh, I'm, I'll take that back. And we you know we do, as I say, we did pass on all the contacts we had to the Department of Health and Social Care. Well, could, would you be very kind and pass um, them on to us? I will go back and request that. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. Yeah. Right, other panel members. Yes, Dr. Davis, please. Um, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, thank you for that evidence. Somebody this evening talked about sins of omission and commission. And you talked about the government being hopeless, but do you think there's actually something worse going on here? Do you think they've used the pandemic to further embed the private sector into the NHS? Because that uh, has been you know, a long-term goal. Do you think they've cynically done that at all during this pandemic? Um, I mean, I'm sure there's many. I mean, Dr. Professor McCoy alluded to this as well, didn't he? That there are some who, who would want to bring this about so that the opportunity has arisen to utilise the private sector in many, many parts of the, the NHS and in, in, in society during the, during the pandemic. And, um, and I'm sure that there has been a method there to, um, to allow the private sector to move in more. Uh, where we go from going forward, I don't know, because uh, it's clearly important that um, this inquiry and campaigning groups try to highlight the issue. Uh, but it's quite hard to cut through and you know the media obviously are not always on the side of trying to highlight these issues but and uh, someone mentioned the good law project before i'd encourage all the viewers to to follow the good law project because they're doing great stuff in trying to highlight all the issues that are going on and try and raise um the concerns of the public that are, are, that just don't try, don't come about in the, in the media we don't hear about them Yes, they, they, they were behind the action I mentioned to you before in February. Um, any other questions? Yes, Professor. Thank you very much. Um, Dr. Wigley, those of us who work in the health service know that private hospitals don't train staff. Um, but it would be very interesting for our listeners to understand also what your view is of the, um, the effects on the NHS workforce, NHS workforce numbers are of having a parallel private healthcare system. Yes, I mean, it's often um, forgotten or not appreciated that the NHS is a, a fantastic training institution. All our, Obviously, all our junior doctors um, have their rotations through all the different parts of hospitals, receive their training from their peers and their seniors, um, and that's all done within the the you know the bounds of providing day-to-day -day care, and the same goes for general practice as well, where we train the GPs of the future. And uh, the private hospitals um, have, have no, no um, desire or willingness to, to, to do, do this training because it, it might slow procedures down or it may um, mean you can't have as many patients um, going through the theater or through the outpatient clinic. So it, it could have a, a devastating effect on the training of our young doctors for the future because uh, patients who you know, could be um, used for, for training for surgeons and others going through the private hospitals and no, no no trainee will get anywhere near them for that vital time that they need to learn how to do procedures so yeah so if the private sector is expanded then this is something that really does need addressing because all the opportunities lost there for training and uh, and support for for the for the junior doctors and, and, and doctors and nurses and others of course in the future are lost any more questions from the panel now, I'm going to thank you, therefore, uh, Dr. Wrigley, very much for giving up your time today. And uh, I look forward to uh, a schedule coming yeah. our way. It will be of great help. Thank you very much. Thank you. And back to Alona Hackett, Council, to call the next witness, please.
Thank you, Mr. Mansfield. The next witness is Rosa Curling. Hi, good evening. Um, thank you very much for your evidence statement, which I understand has been prepared on behalf of Foxglove and that you are a representative of Foxglove, is that correct? Yes, I'm one of its uh, co-founders and directors. So uh, for people that don't know, um, here's your opportunity to, to plug Foxglove. What is it and what does it do? Sure, so Foxglove is a non-profit. Uh, we set up uh, in the summer of 2019, um, we use a mixture of investigations, campaigning and litigation to try and make sure that technology is fair for everybody. Okay, so um, your uh, the evidence statement, um, fascinating, talks about um, this unprecedented um, collation of NHS data um, called the COVID-19 data store. Can you just explain to the panel of those people watching what that was, what the rationale was behind it, who was involved in its creation and, and what the data, what, what data is in there? Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm hoping to talk to you a little bit about not only the data store, but NHS data a bit in general, because I think this is the space where the kind of battle of privatisation is now moving towards. Um, the data store was uh, set up in March 2020. 2020. Um, it was announced very quietly on an NHS blog. Um, and it basically was a data store that was set up by the NHS um, through a series of different um, contracts and agreements with US tech giants uh, of uh, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, and then also faculty in Palantir. Um, it was a data store which was said to be a single source of truth about the pandemic. And it was the first time, and you know, the, the department called it unprecedented, it was the first time that health and social care data was being collected from a variety of different sources, uh, collated on a national uh, level, and then held in one single place. So it was a, it was a really unprecedented and, and new collection of uh, health data in a way we haven't seen before. And maybe just to explain that the NHS um, data really is pretty unique in the world. It's the largest, we hold the largest set of machine readable health data on the planet. It has an estimated value of about 10 billion a year. And as a result, it's being eyed up by all of the kind of tech corporations across the world. And what we saw during the pandemic was the kind of normal rules about procurement and data protection basically being cast aside. Um, and what we are very anxious about at Foxglove is making sure that those emergency arrangements don't become the norm uh, without our consent. So medical data, extremely sensitive, uh, very valuable, um, and, and you use the word unprecedented. Um, and then, of course, we've got big tech companies um, that make their money from data. So Fox, what did Foxglove do in response to this um, sort of slipped through announcement on a blog? Yeah. So when we read this blog, uh, we immediately wanted to know more. Um, and despite the unprecedented nature of this step, uh, perhaps surprising, perhaps unsurprisingly, the government released virtually no details at all about the data deals it's reached with the private companies. 
Uh, and also it didn't uh, tell us what types of data were going to be stored in the data store. Um, and just to kind of remind everybody that the kind of tech companies that were chosen to be brought in uh, by the NHS, these are companies that exist to aggregate and monetize data, basically. And a lot of the press reports at the time suggested that the companies who were involved uh, were hoping to kind of bed down in the NHS long term. So for us, a whole host of questions arose from uh, the creation of this data store. One was about public trust. Did the companies that the NHS England and the department had chosen to bring in, had they earned the public trust necessary to have access to all of our most sensitive uh, confidential medical information? Did they have the public trust necessary to work within our national health service? Whether it's correct that all of the most sensible data, most sensitive data about us all should be collated on such a mass scale and held in one place. What security was in place to protect it? Who would have access to it? On what terms? Whether the COVID uh, data store would definitely come to an end when the pandemic resolved, because that's what the blog stated, but it's clearly not in the company's interests for that to happen. Um, and but clearly it may be in the public interest for that to happen and the NHS more generally for that to happen. So we started with a series of freedom of information requests asking for copies of the contracts. They'd written, they had agreed a series of contracts. We asked for copies of them. And we also asked for copies of what are called data protection impact, impact assessments, which are documents which are a bit like a quality impact assessments with a quality with kind of discrimination and equality act that basically require public bodies to think about what impact um, the from a kind of data rights point of view, the data store would have for individuals. Uh, sadly, all of the deadlines for the Freedom of Information Act uh, requests came and went, and so uh, Foxglove and Open Democracy basically threatened to issue proceedings. Uh, this was back in um, April, and we, gave, we sent them a deadline um, of May. Um, on the 5th of June, kind of a day or two before we were to file our application, finally uh, the contracts were published. Um, although uh, some information uh, was redacted. Um, then a few days after that, um, uh, the data protection impact assessments were in fact published, although they had been completed after the event, which uh, is not what the law requires. Uh, so it took us about three months of concerted legal pressure and legal threats to obtain, in essence, copies of documents that were easily and readily available and the details of the data deals were clearly something that a public debate and a public discussion and scrutiny should have allowed to take place because the creation of the database itself wasn't subject to any public uh, consultation or scrutiny. So you mentioned this, um, the data protection impact assessment. Um, why do they matter uh, and um... Uh, and why was it important for that to have happened before these contracts were entered into? Yeah, um, so that's a really good question. Um, and we actually took a second case about that exact issue because following this the series of initial contracts that were signed between NHS England and, and these companies, with Palantir in particular, 
two further contracts were signed and the last one that was signed in December is now for two years and it goes beyond the COVID-19 pandemic. So the initial announcement of the data store being for COVID-19 purposes only, the third contract signed with Palantir showed that in fact there were a series of other matters that were going to be considered um, and going to be going to be matters that the data store was going to kind of be used for things like the EU exit, uh, things like business monitoring as usual, things like the flu um, and other relevant pandemics, which is slightly sinister. I don't quite know what that will involve, but clearly these these were going beyond any kind of emergency COVID issues. And so we made very clear that there needs to be a proper data protection impact assessment in relation to the non-COVID matters. And why I think the DPIA, the data protection impact assessment, and the consultation obligations that are involved in such an assessment why these, I think, are not just mere legal formalities, they're actually processes that really matter because the public has the right to be consulted about how their medical data is used and with whom it's shared. And the stakes with health data, I think, are kind of, I mean, it's almost impossible to kind of explain that they are so high. The rewards of proper data use in the public interest are potentially life-saving while the risks involved uh, from kind of minor embarrassment to a total corruption of trust in the medical profession um, are really, really serious. So the, in terms of, for example, with the pandemic, we saw a really um, kind of upsetting level of vaccine hesitancy and obviously wider health misinformation, which meant that the trust in some of our health institutions you know, was was eroded, and that has a massively negative impact. Data protection impact assessments are about ensuring accountability. It can't be assumed that in the interest of the public for something that it's believed to be helpful in an urgent situation should necessarily become a kind of business as usual way of working. The private companies know the NHS with its highly centralised system, and its unique mass of health data provide extraordinary opportunities from which to profit. And that kind of incentive may, you know, creates, and it, I would say is at odds with a lot of the public interests and best interests of patients. And that's why public engagement and a data protection impact assessment is so crucial because trust is undermined when the public see or have a sense that contracts are being awarded to parties for reasons other than the public good. Uh, and we've obviously seen and, um, you know, the panel and other witnesses have already alluded to the fact that we've seen numerous exposés about major public contracts being awarded to politically connected donors, allies, large firms without competition or public scrutiny. And above all, the NHS needs the public to trust, needs the public's trust to be effective and to operate well and, you know, persuade people to take vaccinations or to share their health information. And meaningful consultation and democratic assent, for example, with the involvement of these kind of private corporations, these huge tech giants, that's the only way to retain the public trust in our, which, on which our public health depends and that's why the 
DPIA process and the public consultation process is so crucial because unless you have that level of transparency, you ask the public for their views and for their consent about whether they want their most sensitive confidential information to be shared with private corporations or whether in fact they want that data to be kept within public bodies as a public asset for the public good. If you're going to change that arrangement, then you have to get democratic mandate. You have to get a proper consent for that to happen. Otherwise, you really are threatening, I think, the trust and the kind of patient confidentiality that is really at the kind of the bedrock of our National Health Service. Yeah, you talk in your statement about um, there, uh, and this is just moving forward a little bit. Um, last week on the 12th of May, NHS Digital issued a data provision notice to all GPs, um, which provides an opt out. If a patient does not want identifiable data to be shared outside their GP practice, except for their own care, they can opt out at any time. Well, so how much, I mean, how long is this going to go on for? I mean, is this is this a, a permanent arrangement? That, well, that, I think that's the really crucial question. I would urge everybody to kind of look into this in more detail. I think what we're particularly anxious about is what we saw as emergency arrangements with the COVID-19 data store and now being pushed through and in a very, very quiet way they're being pushed through as something that should happen on a more permanent basis, and that's being done without our consent. So just to explain a little bit further, what uh, was announced last week is that uh, the Secretary of State has issued a, a what's called a direction that GP data should be transferred to NHS Digital. Um, and also there's some also in the in the white paper, there's some social care data that's also going to be required to be transferred up to NHS Digital to collect together in one space a, a huge kind of mass uh, data set of health and social care data, which NHS Digital will then hold. Uh, there has been no attempt to get consent from patients at all about this. When this was attempted before in 2014, every single patient was written to and their consent was requested. This time, that hasn't happened. There's been a website put up, a few tweets put out, which basically says, unless you opt out, then there's an assumption that you've consented. And we have real concerns about whether that is, in fact, um, lawful under data protection uh, law. And we're kind of looking into that further. Um, but also, I think it makes you know, huge questions then arise in terms of what is NHS Digital going to do with that uh, information? What limits do they have in relation to that data? Who can access who can access the data? For what purposes can it be used? Is there a meaningful consent framework that permits patients to, for example, differentiate between academic and for-profit access. If data is going to play such a crucial role in our health service moving forward, it must be that there is a proper democratic mandate if these sweeping changes are going to be brought in long term. And we definitely need to demand to have our say in it, because I think the experience we've had through the through the pandemic and with the data store, unless you demand it, um, it gets crept in via the back door. Yeah, sure. Because even before the COVID-19 pandemic, um, in your statement, you talk about the 
2018 report from the Academy of Medical Sciences, which sets out effectively the future of healthcare being data-driven, technologies being sort of wearables, apps, intelligent devices using machine learning. It's very futuristic. Um, so if it was always envisaged, is this not just an excuse to sort of fast track that now? Yeah, and I think, you know, I, clearly health data is incredibly useful and it's, you know, it's got a wealth of extremely important and helpful uh, information that could certainly make our NHS public service stronger. The question is whether we make sure that that data remains a public asset for the public good. And if that isn't going to happen, on what basis and with what limitations we're allowing these huge private corporations, when you think of somebody like Amazon or Google or Alphabet, you know, these are enormous, you know, multinationals that have a kind of corporate resources and corporate power that is also pretty unprecedented. If we're going to start to allow those sorts of corporations into our NHS, how on earth do we make sure that they are not allowed to, or that, that there is a proper discussion about that involvement and there's proper consent given from us all that that's what we want. And if that's the case, how do we make sure that they don't then use that access basically for their own private profit? Yeah, I mean, I suppose it begs the question, why isn't the NHS profiting from the data? And also how much profit are these private firms making from NHS data? Do we know? Well, we know that the we know that the first contract with Palantir they offered to do the work for one pound. The third contract with Palantir they offered to do it for twenty three million pounds. So there was quite a big jump in relation to uh, the amount of money that that company um, was uh, charging the NHS. Um, Perhaps I could also just take a moment just to reflect a little bit about the suitability of a company like Palantir in our National Health Service. Yep. Palantir is very well known to US audiences. I think it's slightly less known to UK audiences. It's a company that was set up by Peter Thiel, who was a Silicon Valley billionaire and a major donor to Donald Trump. Um, it's a company that was built um, and accused of fueling racist feedback loops uh, when it worked with the Los, Los Angeles police. And it's been criticized uh, really uh, repeatedly about, by its own staff over its role in the US um, immigration and customs enforcement, um, which have some incredibly harmful policies in relation to family separations at the US-Mexico border that people uh, may remember. So again, I think we would question uh, very much whether this is the sort of partner you know, in the long term that the NHS wants to be signing deals with or whether in fact their very involvement will undermine confidence in the health service amongst the very communities where the government states it's trying to now shore up trust, for example, uh, in relation to the vaccination programme. Sure. Uh, Rosa Curling, I'm afraid that's all I've got time for, but I would like to now hand you back to the panel. Thank you very much for your evidence. Uh, Michael Mansfield, please. Uh, yes, completely fascinating and Orwellian, I have to say, listening carefully. Um, I think I haven't got enough time to go through it, but I, I want to go back to base here because I'm confused about what's going on here. Uh, can I just take it in quick stages? First of all, I've got a GP. I don't go to him anymore. It's all done remotely. But he and she, they have files on me 
in their surgery. Now, it, that is all going to be subject to this data process or data bank or whatever you want to call it. Is, is that right? The data store will have that kind of information, will it? So what was announced last week was that as of the 1st of July, the GP uh, records will be transferred straight up to NHS Digital. So there will be a collation of all GP uh, kind of patient history and medical records will go up to NHS Digital as of the 1st of July unless you opt out. This is very much... Um, there's lots of questions that have sort of left unanswered by what NHS Digital and the Secretary of State have announced. But on the face of it, that's what seems to be um, being okay. announced. Right. Well, in order to opt out, I've got to know that I'm in. So is the GP going to have an obligation to tell me that that's happening? Because you're the first person. I mean, I do read newspapers, but I haven't still. I haven't seen anything about this. That's my fault. But the GP has an obligation or not an obligation? Tell me. It is definitely not your fault, is the first thing I would say. The obligation is on the Secretary of State and NHS Digital to seek your consent and to notify you about this proposal. So um, at the moment, their notification is simply a web page um, and a link to how you can opt out. And there have been a series of tweets but in my view, that is utterly hopeless, and I would go as far as saying it's unlawful, um, because there has been a failure to properly notify you. And I'm not surprised you haven't seen anything in any newspapers. There's been a complete lack of coverage about this, uh, and we're certainly... But I think, I think the, the point I'm trying to make here is that I'm dealing with the point of delivery, so I'm saying to myself, the person who delivers the service should be having an obligation to tell me that actually the files he or she's got are going to go on the 1st of July somewhere else, but I can opt out. Anyway, that doesn't seem to be happening. Second thing is, this is the confusing bit. I go to, I've brought this point up with medical, I hope the doctor's concerned, I'm not going to, I'm not going to name them. I, I go to a hospital or a doctor and the doctor said, blah, 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 what, about, what about this, what about that? And I say, well, haven't you got my records? They say, no. You mean I've got to do it all over again? They said, yes. So now it seems to be that suddenly, uh, from an inability to coordinate all the information, the information on me, which is all over the place, I dare say, is all going to be brought into one place, not necessarily for my benefit, but for the benefit of somebody who wants to trade in it. Uh, have I got that right so far? Yeah, I mean, one of the questions that we have to know from NHS Digital is on what basis they're holding the information. At the moment, they say they're collecting the information together for a series of different reasons, some to do with research, planning, commissioning and public health in general. But obviously, we need to know much more what that means and what limits they consider themselves to be under in relation to who can have access to your data who can, who can process the data and whether they will confirm that under no circumstances will there be an ability of private corporations to come in, access it, process it, sell it off to it. Because those are all the issues that lots of, I suspect lots of patients care very much about. Yeah, well, I do. So the next question, final question, I'll <laughs> to somebody else, but I'm completely riveted and amazed uh, and mind boggled by all of this so that this is going to happen on July the 1st. At that point in time, 
Have they decided who's going to have access to this? From the 1st of July? Yeah. Yeah, from the 1st of July, my understanding, again, just from this one minimal website, is that basically the data will go to NHS Digital and yeah. then it will be held there. And one yes. of the questions that we that we certainly feel like we must have access to, because how on earth can we decide whether to opt in or opt out unless we know, is what, what limits, got. yeah, what li and what data sets are going and what limits there are in terms of access to that. Uh, but at the moment, sorry to just pursue this, no. at the moment, who is it who's going to be able to contact NHS Digital and say, oh, I, I, I want some information on people with one leg in Leamington Spa or somewhere? That's a question that I would like to ask them myself, <laughs> Mr. Okay. Mercer. It's not totally clear yet. All right, all right. I'm going to, sorry, I, I, I've got a lot more, but I think we might be here till midnight. Um, other panellists, please, anything they would like to ask? Yes, Dr. Eddie. Thank you um, for your for your testimony so far. I've got, I want to pick up on the point that you made about, um, or two points that are connected, one about trust and the other about community participation. So can you say a little bit more about, you know, again, picking up on Michael's point of, you know, how, what is the engagement that is actually required here? Because it just seems like these things have just, happened and in the context of what we what we've always known but has become very um, apparent of the importance of trust trust the community particularly in underserved and underreached um, communities and populations to engage with the health system this seems like a huge um, huge risk to me in terms of um, you know <laughs> compromising that trust which is already somewhat fragile so what from your from that legal perspective what would the expectations be in terms of community um engagement and opportunity to input into this i, I could not agree more i think it's i think trust is literally at the heart of the national health service and its ability to operate and work well and what I would argue is that in, if you are bringing about any changes to how NHS data is being used, collected together, shared with, you know, people are having, you know, companies or other research, I mean, whatever is happening in relation to that data, you as somebody who has, in a kind of legal sense, data rights, you know, you have the right to know, and indeed, you should be what, the, what I would say the data protection laws require is your explicit consent to what happens with that data. So from my perspective, what happened during COVID-19 in emergency arrangements, which was a um, unprecedented collation of data being held in one single place, which was this data store, that was supposedly only for COVID-19 purposes and was going to be closed down when COVID, when the pandemic ended, that though what happened during the COVID-19 pandemic on an emergency basis cannot be allowed to just carry on as normal without a massive step back, a full and proper consultation process and procedure by which people are given full information about what if any changes and what if any kind of 
data deals or contracts or arrangements or new collation of data is going to be proposed, that people have to be informed about what exactly that involves, what risks are involved with that, what benefits it may bring, who, you know, what limits with what conditions, for example, private corporations may have access to it, and only having given people full and substantive information, then you give people the right and you seek their explicit consent for whatever proposals it is that you are putting forward. And only then can you have a basis on which to in fact implement change. Mm. So it's a really, it's, it's not that it's just consultation, it's actually in my view, you have to get your, you have to get a democratic mandate and data rights, sub, sub, data subjects consent for any of these changes to happen. Mm. Yeah, because the concern, of course, is that it ends up widening health inequality, which is already precarious. Absolutely. Thank you. I think there's another question. Dr. Davis, please. Hi, thank you. That was really a kind of scary presentation, actually. I bet a lot of people didn't know about that. No, I mean, thank you for it. It's really important. Um, you know, the NHS traditionally didn't deal very much in data because... Um, we didn't need to insure people or exclude them from insurance. And I think the fear now will be that this data is being bought. I mean, you said I think it was worth £19 billion. And it will then be used in that sort of way um, to identify patients who are high risk and all that sort of thing. Do, do you think that's what is it, they're after? Yeah, I mean, we don't... I think... It, there may be a whole range of different things that they're after and people can make profit from health data in a variety of different ways. So, uh, for example, when we got the first contract um, released between NHS England and faculty, um, one of the things that we learned was that after we requested that transparency, um, an amendment was made to the contract. So the initial contract that was signed with faculty um, allowed them to, in essence, um, they, used, they were able to retain the uh, kind of intellectual property rights or the kind of machine learning that they may have gained from access to NHS data. They were allowed to keep those profits after we sought the, after we asked for a copy of the agreement, um, that agreement was then changed, so they couldn't keep the profits. I think there was a recognition that if the public were aware, <laughs> that that would cause serious outrage and um, criticism. And so that was changed. I mean, that's obviously me speculating, but uh, that was changed, and so it was made sure that they couldn't make private profit from access to the NHS data. Um, but I think, I think this NHS data is potentially incredibly valuable to private corporations. We have to be aware of that reality. And as a, you know, as, as a group of citizens and patients of the National Health Service, make decisions about what we feel about that and whether that's acceptable or not. I, I know I personally have a, a, a quite a strong view about what I think about NHS data and its 
kind of need to remain very public and that it's a public asset for the public good. Um, but clearly what needs to happen is a proper democratic debate about this. And none of this should be allowed to be swept in or kind of deals be made behind closed doors. There needs to be a proper discussion about the future of NHS data. And to be honest, that has to happen now because decisions are being taken now by the Secretary of State. And unless we demand our involvement in that, I fear that it'll become too late. I'm going to take a deep breath here because uh, uh, there's one more witness, but there's so much more to ask you. Um, may I thank you very much for your time tonight? Thank you, Rosa. And we, I think we might come back to you about more details on this. And so I wish you every good wish and good luck. Thank you. Uh, I can I pass back, please, to Lorna Hackett uh, to call the last witness tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Mansfield. The last witness is Dr. Michelle Dawson. Hello there. Hello. Good evening, Dr. Dawson. Um, I have uh, in front of me a witness statement signed uh, in manuscript by you, uh, dated the 15th of May, um, and below, above which you have confirmed that the opinions you've expressed represented your true and complete professional opinions on the matters to which they refer. Does that remain correct this evening? It does, yes. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, could you start by telling the, uh, the panel um, and everybody watching uh, what your occupation is, please? Um, so I'm a consultant anaesthetist um, working also in critical care and I'm also a trustee of a charity that was formed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, it started off being called Heroes and it's now called the um, Healthcare Workers Foundation. Um, and is it also right that you are a clinical lead in procurement and have been since 2009? It is. I've also did last night on call, so I've had about three hours sleep in the last 36, so I, I might be a little less sharp than usual. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. Now, um, it, it's right to say that you're sort of somewhat of a, a unicorn, can I put it that way, albeit on three hours sleep. You're one of the only hospital doctors in the UK with experience working in procurement. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Yes. Okay, thank you. Um, I, can I start then? I will be gentle with you, I promise. Um, with uh, what happened um, in March 2020 for you professionally? What were you doing? Where were you? So um, we, I started by watching with awe the hospitals being built in Wuhan um, in like 36 hours, 48 hours, and thinking this is big, this is major, this is going to spread around the world, and this is going to impact on every country. And watching with um, just dazed, really, that nothing seemed to be happening. So um, we were talking amongst ourselves. There's a, a large um, group of medics on Twitter around the world, actually, who were um, sharing information. And as the COVID pandemic was crossing continents, um, these people, these doctors, these nurses, these medics were sharing the information. And I was just waiting for something to happen in the UK and I just saw inaction. 
Mm -hmm. I saw absolute inaction. And towards the end of February, beginning of March, um, a friend of mine who is an A&E doctor, in a, um, and I don't know where she works, and that's good because I don't want to know where she works, contacted me to say, we are being told that we can't have any PPE at all. We have to see patients who probably have COVID with no PPE at all because we have so little, it's all being saved for ITU. Wow. Okay. Uh, yes. What was the position? So you don't know where she works. You don't want to. What was the position no. of your local ITU? So our our trust um, was. So we we are we we were fairly forward thinking. Um, I was actually on two weeks holiday, which is why I had more time to do things outside my working in the NHS than normal. And I started casting around and trying to find out where the PPE was coming from, who was getting it for us, because having worked in procurement in the NHS, um, I know how how it works, how you have to have the OGU process in. Uh, there's lots of legalities that have to be gone through properly and that this was a, a global pandemic. So this was not just Britain needs PPE. This was the whole world needs the same stuff at the same time. And there's a very limited number of manufacturers and virtually none of them are in the UK. So if we want to get the PPE, we have got to get to the front of that queue. And therefore we need to start asking these companies to ramp up their production immediately. And I actually got in touch with NHS England um, and was speaking to them quite frequently um, and finding out what the pandemic stocks were like. And I was told that the pandemic stocks of visors were estimated to be 10 days worth, but they had underestimated the usage and it was probably only two days worth. And then I started casting around thinking, well, I can't see anything being done. You know, this can't be done locally. This has to be done nationally. The amount of money that has to be spent on this is going to be hundreds of millions of pounds. It has to be national. Um, and so having found out that the pandemic stock, the rumours of it being massively run down were true, um, I started looking around to see if I could open up supply chains. And I can't give you any names because they've asked me not to, but I did manage to open up a supply chain directly via the Chinese government for 50 million FFP3 masks, which are the close-fitting ones that you need when dealing with COVID patients. 50 million. And this was at the middle of March, when we had nothing, we had nothing. I, when I, um, at that time we were working on COVID ITU with no PPE whatsoever, unless we went within six feet of a patient because we had to conserve the stocks. So we were walking down COVID ITU with no PPE because we didn't have enough to let there's lots of people come and go on ITU and I was one of the comers and goers as an anaesthetist 
And so we, we believed it was safe. It wasn't that we were taking risks. We believed it was safe because the patients were intubated. So the COVID should have been within the tubing, not in the air. And, you know, it, that, it, it, it's more pervasive than that. It's an aerosol. It's not a droplet spread. And it was in the air. But we didn't know that at the time. We were doing our best. But the stocks of PPE were so low, we were going on ITU with nothing. But, nothing. Uh, but you've just told me that you um, facilitated some, some supply chains directly from China of 50 million FFP3 masks, uh, yeah. which, of, of course, are, are the standard that are required yeah. for COVID patients. Hopefully you're going to tell me that the government took you up on the offer and um, you got all of the, the FFP3 masks and distributed them around the country. Is that what happened? It certainly isn't. No, we found out who to contact by cabinet office. So we we spoke directly to cabinet office. We emailed cabinet office. We sent them all of the correct paperwork and I followed it up a week later and nothing had happened. And it was a it's a global pandemic and those masks could not be held by China. And so they were sold to Germany because they were fit for purpose. So then we got 30 million masks a month for from the same supplier that was still willing to prioritize the UK and sent all of the paperwork because by this stage we knew exactly what the paperwork should be and sent that to cabinet office as well. And that wasn't followed up on either. And when you say, um, you've said earlier in your evidence that there's lots of sort of legality that has to be gone through. You sent the correct paperwork and you know that from your so, experience in. Uh, so, so this is CE marking. We didn't go through any tendering process because that takes months and months and months. But this was showing that they had, had fit, um, fulfilled all the quality criteria and that they were the same as the ones that we were already buying via supply chain because we'd sent the product codes to them to make sure that what we were sourcing was exactly what we needed. Mm -hmm. So, And I wasn't a VIP. I clearly didn't have access to the VIP lane and it, it wasn't followed up. So you, you said at the outset that um, you uh, are trustee and co-founder of the charity Heroes, which is now called Healthcare Workers Foundation. Um, why did you set that up and what does it do? So having tried really quite hard and very quickly, I mean, getting those masks from start to finish or, you know, getting access to those masks, but not having a spare 50 million hanging around so I couldn't actually buy them, um, that took eight nine days to set up that open that supply chain and and then another five days to find out that it hadn't been followed up on and that's when I realized that um that this was a massive problem that not only did the NHS not that the NHS was not being supplied with the PPE it needed in a timely manner but there are also hospices and care homes and hospices are only 20 percent funded by taxation, they're 80% funded by charity donations. They're often quite small and standalone, and they're not NHS. So they are not supplied by NHS supply chain. 
and a lot of most of the care homes are privately um, private en enterprises and so they're not NHS either and so they don't get anything from NHS supply chain either and they were expected on their own to go into a global I mean it wasn't just a global market it was a global fight for a PPE you know there were there were especially it was America actually, and they were buying futures on PPE. So everybody else was buying what was available, but America was going in and buying what you will make in the next three months. And that completely changed the game when America needed PPE. They weren't buying what was in the warehouses, they were buying what would be made. So it was, it was, it was, you know, it was, I can imagine it was very aggressive um, trying to buy stuff because there wasn't enough and everybody needed it. And then there are the people who were willing to sell stuff that was fake. There were people willing to, you know, just, just to profiteer really. And the prices rose and rose and rose. Um, yeah, so, so we, I thought, right, how are we going? How can I do the best I can? to get PPE where it's needed, because we were reading, most of the information was spread on Twitter, and I was reading of hospices that were going to have to close because they had no PPE. Well, a hospice by definition is full of people who are terminally ill, about to die, and they need really special care. How can you send people like that home? How can you do that? How do you close a hospice? Um, so, by this stage, there's been a kind of coalition, co coalescence of, of, of similar minded people, people I'd never met before, and they all just seemed to appear as we needed them. It was just extraordinary. Um, people like Dominic Pimenta and Paul Ford and Helpful Engineering. And we just all started. I was doing 10, 12 hours work a day on this and all got together and started raising money. And um, a lot of PPE isn't medical. Well, all of it isn't medical. It's actually dust masks. It's in indust industry standards, not medical standards. And so one of the thoughts we started with, and I tried to get this done nationally, but got nowhere um, so one of the thoughts we had was that there must be quite a lot of this in all of the companies that can't work that they've got all of this protective equipment stashed away in their own warehouses perhaps if we asked them they would donate it to us so then we could deliver it to the care homes and the hospices and the hospitals that were running out and it was Paul, it started off being called Contractors Appeal. And that was run, started by Paul Ford and just most wonderful guy. Um, and sure enough, we got huge amounts of PPE given to us by companies. And then Paul would courier it out with his own fleet of vans to wherever it was needed. And then somebody else started up a website called frontline.com. And that allowed anybody anywhere in the UK to put out a plea for help if they were running out of PPE. Um, and I mean, there was one hospital, I won't say which one, because it's not I don't it's not blame. This was nobody's fault. Well, it was nobody in the NHS's fault. 
and they so at this stage PPE you didn't order it you got it on a push basis and that meant that whatever the government had got they sent you but it didn't necessarily match what you needed so it was quick and efficient but it meant that we had no idea what we were going to get and this hospital was, was there were three days before their next delivery and it was at the height of the first wave and they had run out of body bags and masks and gowns and when people have died of covid or of anything they still need to be moved and the porters who are usually on zero hours contracts were still having to move infected bodies with no body bag, no mask and no gown. So we didn't have body bags, but we had everything else. And so we, we sent them three days worth just to tide them over because, you know, we, we, we ended up raising 1.2 million in actual money. And then part of what we did was also trying to keep the NHS NHS staff morale going and so we were organizing um, food drops and you know little um, cheer you up bags and um, so it was a two-pronged approach really mm -hmm. but yeah it, I can't I can't describe to you how desperate it was every single day at work there was somebody you know an, an NHS worker in tears in the changing room because we saw colleagues dying you know we saw them dying mm -hmm. and we were terrified we would be the next one and you just had to keep going in there and keep working uh, I'm, I'm gonna um move on slightly because uh, we've got quite mm -hmm. a lot of evidence to get through and i, I know we're creeping up to nine o'clock um in your witness statement you talk about the way in which contracts with private companies were awarded and you give a specific example about ventilators um, I wonder if you could just take a, a moment to tell the panel about the government's call for manufacture of, of ventilators and what went wrong with the attempts to source them for, for example why was Dyson approached why not liaise with the known and established providers of whom there were many so to to put the to put it into to, to frame it correctly, ventilators is, is not one single thing. It's like talking about transport. So it's to move from one place to another, you could walk or you could go in a fighter jet. And ventilators are that range. They go from very, very simple to exceedingly complex. And the ones that we needed were the exceedingly complex ITU ones. And uh, just a bag that somebody can squeeze, that squeezes air into somebody's lungs and allows it back out again, was absolutely not what we needed. We needed a proper complex ITU ventilator that has different programs. It's got it's, it's a massively complex piece of kit and it's taken years to develop them. And it takes yeah it takes years you know you've got to write the software you've got to do so the the bit that goes from the box that is the ventilator and the tubing to the patient 
the tubing gets thrown away on a regular basis and they're called the consumables and then you have filters and then you have to have compatibility and you have to have compatibility with the gas flow and all of that making sure and each each country has things slightly differently so to have all of the software written the hardware correct the compatibilities made the consumables manufactured um it it was it was going to take years but we already had them we all they'd already been designed they'd already been through all of the quality assurance there were multiple companies in the UK who already made fit for purpose ITU ventilators and they approached the government saying we can make these just you know we just need funding and then we can make these for you and they were ignored and then the EU contacted the government and said, <clears throat> we're going to do an EU-sized contract for the ITU ventilators. Would you like to join us? And this is all in the press. And the government actually said no. And when it broke in the press, they'd said no. They said, oh, no, we didn't say no. We just didn't get the email, which was proven to be that was not true. And that's in the public domain. That's in, that's in the press. So how Dyson got the contract to make ventilators from scratch which is really is like asking somebody who makes vacuum cleaners to make a fighter jet a helicopter in a month because the time frame was that tight he you know nobody can do that but they we, they didn't need to they didn't need to reinvent ventilators they just needed to buy the ones that had already been designed and used and quality assessed and some of these um some of these pieces of equipment are really technical and really complex aren't they so yes. uh, as i understand it um you might have a non nhs employee um standing there telling you how to use it i mean were people trained to use these new ventilators for example well we obviously we didn't get any new ventilators dyson supplied the nhs with zero ventilators um but one of the things that causes errors is to have lots and lots of different versions of the same piece of equipment. Um, so, you know, it's like trying to drive a car or a motorbike or fly a plane. You've got to have all motorbikes or all cars or all planes, otherwise people make mistakes. Um, but we got no, I don't, did they actually buy any ventilators for the NHS? I wasn't aware of any new ones at all. And then there was no comprehension that the limiting factor wasn't ventilators, it was staff. Because mm. the, the ventilators don't make you better, it's the person operating the ventilator that helps you recover. And without the staff to make the ventilator work, then it's useless. Um, I'm going to have to cut my questions short because I know the panel have got some questions for you. Um, I just want to talk again a, a little bit about the cost um, of PPE and the amount spent. So in November 2020, the National Order Office reported 10 billion of the total sum spent on PPE had been totally wasted. Mm. What's your estimate of the total waste on PPE expenditure today? Oh, I, I don't know. I don't know how much has been wasted, um, but I do, I do know, I think if I stay with what I do know, so the, the item of PPE that was in short supply kept changing 
because it was an incredibly fast moving, dynamic and global problem. It, you know, it wasn't just UK, it was the whole world. Mm -hmm. So the shortage, the first shortage was visors. One of the second shortages was masks. And then a, a prolonged and difficult shortage was gowns. And that wasn't just that we couldn't find gowns, but the raw material used to make them was in had run out. So there was a global shortage of, I think it's poly, polypropylene that they're made of, and the raw material had run out. Um, and I was talking to, I got to, I got to know um, a long-established importer of PPE who was doing a, an extraordinarily good job for the UK. And they had realised that there was rumours that that COVID was going to re-emerge in China and China was going to close its borders and stop the planes full of PPE flying out of China. And so they'd gone literally around the world to find a source of gowns on a different continent and had achieved that. And it was a, a big um, com um, manufacturer on a different continent that had a, a big stock of gowns which was extraordinary because the whole world had run out and they had got this contract ready for the government and were waiting for the government to say yes we will free up the funds for this to go through um and then they were on the phone to me saying that there's an, an american buyer literally walking up and down outside this company and they have got the cash virtually in their pocket they are ready to buy the company and the owner of the company has given me till seven o'clock to get the money for the UK to get the gowns and at that stage it was half past six um and that we were talking till one minute to seven one minute to seven and then they said, oh, my goodness, I've just been texted and they, the government has released the funds. I can get back to the company and say that the, the gowns can go to the UK. Um, final question from me, which is that uh, the BMA Consultants Committee that took place today heard that PPE supplies remain inadequate. Is this your experience as well? I would say a cautious no. I think I haven't seen any shortages for quite some time, but then the number of COVID patients has dropped and dropped and dropped, which is excellent. And most intensive cares have no COVID patients in them at the moment. Mm -hmm. So the pressure for PPE is much less. Dr. Michelle Dawson, um, I could carry on, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to hand you back to the panel because I'll have some questions for you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yes, uh, uh, good evening, Doctor. I'm going to go to Dr. Davis straight away because I happen to know she has some questions. Thank you. Um, I just want you to bring out something that I was really shocked by in your evidence um, because you said, you know, given the government was really busy this year, they had time to audit hospitals and tell them that if they'd gone outside the supply chain, even when they had no PPE, what, what happened? So that I was told this by, um, by procure, local procurement that the, yeah, they, they, they audited what, what hospitals had spent money on and where they'd got their PPE from. 
And if they had found novel routes for getting PPE, which our local hospital did, they were absolute superstars. There were some very big local companies who made PPE for us for free, who repurposed their workers to work with us and just charged us for the raw materials. And we also um, made some reusable gowns and we also sourced our own PPE directly from the manufacturers abroad because we were not being sent what we needed. And every single purchase that was outside of the official channel, which is supply chain, the government has told all the hospitals who've done that, you shouldn't have done that and we're not going to pay for those purchases. You're going to have to find that money from somewhere else. And, and can, how, how, does that amount to a lot of money for hospitals, do you think? Who, who yes. Yeah. Yes, tens of millions per hospital, I think. Extraordinarily vicious and, uh, by the government. I really I wanted you to say that because I think people find it hard to believe that, actually. Thank you. No, that, I, that, that's... I, so I, I've been... So that was what I was told a month ago. I haven't followed it up. I, but as far as I know, that is true. And that is certainly what I was told a month ago is what they've done. Thank you. I know we're pressed for time a little. I'll just see if anybody else has got a question they want to put. If not, I've got one to send you on your way. And thank you very much for spending time. You, you don't have to um, necessarily uh, afford the detail I'm asking. I, I, the question is this, you approached the cabinet office twice. You know, more than that, more than that, multiple times. Multiple times, all right. In any of the times of contact of the cabinet office, did they ever acknowledge or give an explanation? So the all my contact with the civil servants were that they were working very, very, very hard. They were trying extremely hard to get the um, the funding released. They, they were inundated with offers of people trying to help them. Um, and so I, I, have, I have nothing but praise for the people that I contacted. They were trying, but it wasn't them that was choosing who got the contracts and who didn't. Right, that's all I want to know. Yes, may I just thank you very much for coming tonight and giving up your time, and I wish you luck in your own initiative. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now it's a moment to hand back to Tony and uh, the campaign behind all this. Well, thank you very much to Michelle, who's just finished giving testimony, and to David McCoy, David Wrigley and Rosa Curling. We've had some amazing testimony, very, very powerful. Thank you very much to Michael Mansfield and to Lorna and all, all the panel. And a special thank you to Michael Rosen for appearing with us tonight. Um, I've put in some appeals in the chat room asking people watching to support our work and anyone that follows up, please, could you go to the crowdfunder um, and it's on the People's COVID Inquiry website, www.peoplescovidinquiry.com, and uh, try and help us out with even a small donation. 
But there's a huge amount of information also on the on the inquiry website. There's lots of video support from other people that haven't been able to give testimony, but they've given us their video evidence. There's a there's a, a library of of resources and and uh, references, and there's also um, a place where you could join in a, a survey for us. So we, we've got well over a thousand people who've contributed to questions that we're asking them to contribute to our inquiry. Now. The, the um, next two sessions are on June the 2nd and on the 16th of June. The next one is impact on the population. The second of this kind of um, session, and it's focusing on families, the impact on families, the impact on NHS staff, and the impact in particular on mental health. So that's going to be a very important session, and I hope you will register for that. Meanwhile, thank you very much and I hope you've enjoyed tonight and, and um, keep with us for the rest of the inquiry. Good night. <laughs>